No one knows exactly when they started coming. But long ago, the stunning natural rock towers and outcroppings of Meteora, Greece became a magnet for Christian hermits and monks. By the ninth century, there were rugged hermitages and monasteries that were settled amidst the fissures and the hollows and the shallow caves high above the valley floor, virtually inaccessible to friend or foe. But by the early 14th century, there were 20 monasteries that had been built on and into the rocks of the area. Some of these remain to this day in our place of of great interest in the minds of many. The primary means of reaching these monasteries that were built into the rock was by ladders hung on the side of the cliffs. And at other times, ropes were just hung down and there was a big net or a big bucket you would get in or the supplies would be put in and lifted up along the face of the cliff. One such ascent measured a heart-stopping 1,200 feet. You can imagine working your way up the side of a cliff on a ladder, a rope dangling along the side of that rock. The monks withdrew the ropes and the ladders for protection and further discouraged outside contact by claiming to replace a rope only after God allowed one to break. (laughs) Particularly in the earlier centuries, the goal was to remain virtually invisible. I say in the earlier centuries, not as these monasteries were built, they became more visible. But it was to remain virtually invisible and virtually inaccessible. To worship God, untrammeled by the depravity and hostility of the outside world. To cloister away from the evils of that valley below. We should all agree that in the pursuit of Christian holiness, there is a legitimate place for isolation and meditation. Perhaps not everything that was going on in these hermitages and in these places was all bad. And there are times when we need such isolation to meditate upon God and His truth. But as followers of Jesus Christ and as stewards of the apostolic faith, let us also confirm two things. First, to remain invisible and inaccessible as Jesus' followers is to live at cross-purposes with the very nature of God. And secondly, it is to live in direct disobedience to the mission that Jesus gave us as His body in this fallen world. God's decision to create man was a natural outflow of God's inherent glory, reflecting the innate propensity of perfect goodness and perfect power and wisdom and happiness and love to overflow in its glorious perfections and satisfactions as a geyser overflows its subterranean bounds. The God of the Bible delights to reveal His glories for the joy of His creatures. And so a privatized, isolated, inaccessible, keep-things-to-yourself Christianity is inconceivable in Scripture and should ultimately be repulsive to us. I'd like to weave together three passages which reveal this truth and challenge us to orient our lives accordingly. The first is found in Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. As we stir up our minds by way of remembrance, 
We find here the call of wisdom at the crossroads. Now, setting the context, we are aware that Proverbs was a curriculum for gifted young men, Israelite men, as they trained at court for leadership roles. We don't have time to really trace it at any great length, but considering that whole theme of wisdom, God is the ultimate reality and truth is that which corresponds to His nature. God designed the universe, that secondly, so that the glory of His divine nature would be most expressively reflected in the moral skill and spiritual beauty of man who is created in the image of God. Reflecting that character, His attributes, His glory in our lives as His creatures. Because of the intrusion of sin in the human story, We must labor to synchronize our lives with God's wisdom or we will suffer the disruptive and the destructive consequences of folly. An example to the young men there at court. You must learn, there's a great temptation that is out there, but you must learn to reject the seductive advances of the immoral woman. Chapter 5 is given over to that very call. Part of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. This is something that you must address in your life. You must learn to synchronize with the wisdom of God here. The morally wise young man will resist temptation of sexual sin in order to preserve himself for the joy that God created to be enjoyed within the confines of a lifelong covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. As we come to chapter 8, I think it is set here very purposefully in light of chapter 7. The teacher essentially points the young men to a holy love affair with another kind of woman altogether. The immoral woman of chapter 7 moves at dusk. She is slippery and deceptive. She utters entrapping falsehoods. Her house is a death trap. In contrast to this woman and her kisses of death, we are to look to another kind of woman who plies her trade in the daylight. At the busiest place of the city, she speaks truth and she offers life. Verse 1, Does not wisdom call... Does not understanding raise her voice? Wisdom here is personified as a woman. In our culture, we personify death as what? As the grim reaper. And nobody believes that death really walks around in a black cape with a hood and a, and a scythe in its hand. But it's a personification. And so here, wisdom is personified as a woman. She is crying out with a loud voice. Notice her location, verse 2, on the heights. Beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the way, here I think is used literally, as a, of a busy, prominent place in the city. But I don't think we can really miss as we look through the whole context of Proverbs, this use of the word way. The way, throughout Proverbs, is used metaphorically to speak of the course and conduct of one's life and the consequences which flow from that conduct. That's why he's saying in chapter 7, watch out for your way. Do not get taken in by this immoral woman. She has an end, and it's a bitter end. Be concerned about her way. 
Her con- your conduct, your course of life will result in consequences. So wisdom stands at this prominent spot on the highway of life, offering her services to lead people to embrace the life of God. To reach out and take His wisdom. To listen to His counsel. She cries out here, on the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Verse 3, beside the gates, in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. She cries aloud beside the gates. And at the portals, at the, beside the gates, there would be benches. There would be people congregated there, buying and selling their wares. Settling legal matters. There would be the pursuit of political activities here at the gates. And at these portals, Watke defines them as apertures giving access to the gate. These are the narrow passageways into the city wall. And they're a place where the passerbys cannot get away from the voice of wisdom. They have to come right by her and she raises her voice and says, Come and hear what I have to say. She cries aloud with a high volume. She speaks with conviction and passion and a determination to be heard. This is not the soft, seductive, whispering words of the immoral woman, nor is it the sophisticated talking head of a droning, dispassionate reporter. She speaks with passion, as Walkie puts it, in the marketplace where the competition for the hearts of people is fiercest. There she speaks. There she calls to those who are tempted with moral darkness. And verse 4, To you, O men, we find now her cry. I call and my cry is to the children of men. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things. And from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Men and women, young and old, rich and poor, strong and weak, people of every nationality are addressed. All people hear the call of wisdom. From verse 6, there's explained that people should heed wisdom's call because what she has to say is of utmost importance. And the chapter unfolds in that way. We witness then in this personification the nature and the purposes of God. The God we serve is filled with zeal to make His wisdom known to His creatures. We know this, don't we? Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. There's no place where their speech is not heard. God announces His character. He calls people to His wisdom. And wisdom cries out here in the city streets of chapter 8 of Proverbs. But the ultimate revelation of God's zeal is what? What is the ultimate call of wisdom? The ultimate display of the glories of God? The ultimate revelation of God's zeal? The ultimate revelation of His desire to make known His glories is realized in the incarnation and ministry of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There, truth is known as in no other way. Lady Wisdom of Proverbs 8, I do not think is Jesus. Some argue that way. I don't think it is Jesus. I think it's simple personification. And as we look at the Gospel of John, he really doesn't use this kind of terminology to say that Jesus is this wisdom itself. However, 
Proverbs 8 reveals the zeal of God to make Himself known and thus foreshadows this deeper reality of the Word that has become flesh. If wisdom is the truth in the mind of God, this reality has made, was made concrete in the person of Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the Son who is the eternal image of the Father, is made flesh in order to reveal to us the glories of the Father as could be revealed in no other way. We find that wisdom in Christ. This is made quite clear in the prologue of John's Gospel. We're familiar with this as well, these profound words. But let's look to the Gospel of John in chapter 1, if you'll turn with me. John chapter 1 and the Word become flesh. We'll land on this just for a moment, but as we see from wisdom here in Proverbs and God's desire for all to heed His call, we look now at this ultimate revelation of God in the Word become flesh. John 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, I think in an absolute sense, before the formation of the universe, The Word, God's Word in the Old Testament, as Carson says, is a powerful, is His powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And it is now personified in Jesus. The Word is no philosophical category for John. Though it has that, those, those moorings in the culture in which he speaks, I believe his ideas are rooted in the creation, revelation, and salvation of the Word in the Old Testament. And so it's not a philosophical category. The Word is the flesh and blood Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, and at the same time God's own companion and God's own self. He is with God, and He is God. He was, verse 2, in the beginning with God. If there's any mistake about what He is saying, He exists there with God at the start of all that is. And all things, verse 3, were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, And the life was the light of men. The light, as this phrase is used, speaks of moral purity versus immorality. Of moral truth versus falsehood and error and ignorance. Of divine revelation and guidance versus blindness to and rejection of God's way. Kind of understand these things about light, don't we? We can grab a hold of the light with the most grimy hands and it stays pure. There are times when we think a certain thing is the case in the darkness and the light comes on and we see the truth, the reality. The light can guide us and lead us into the right way as it reveals what is. And so this is Christ, our light in moral purity and moral truth and divine revelation leading us into life itself. His eternal life, His resurrection life, of which the spiritual life that we now have points. And in this context, even to physical life, He is the source of our physical life and the source of spiritual life. The light, verse 5, shines in the darkness. Notice that. This light shines out in the darkness. 
and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light that the moral darkness is unable to overwhelm or hold back. Jesus will conquer the hearts of His people and He will rescue them from moral darkness. This is assured. A spiritual life, then, does not ultimately hinge upon good works. You say, well, what does all this mean? It's a bit theoretical. What does this mean to me? Spiritual life does not ultimately hinge on our good deeds. The light is not in us. This is the theory of the day, played out in many ways. Our children, there's light in them. We just need to let them develop. In our own lives, if we just find our way, we will develop in the direction that we should take. We are taught all the time that the light and the life resides in us. The Scriptures teach us that light and life reside in Christ. And so it means that spiritual life does not ultimately hinge upon my good deeds. It does not hinge on our family heritage, on our church, our baptism, our profession of faith, or some spiritual experience that we have had, however noble that may be. That is not where spiritual life resides. Our salvation from sin and God's just wrath against us as sinners is realized in a person. In the person of Jesus Christ, the sinless Christ, whose death pays the penalty of sin and whose resurrection secures eternal life for all who believe in His name. This is not a message we can simply acknowledge to be true. We must trust it and we must abandon ourselves to it. We must gladly give ourselves to this life and this light, coming to it as one who is lost in the darkness of a cave, to die there in the darkness because no way can be found. As the light comes to us in that darkness, we respond to Christ who we see then as the revelation that is our life. Have you come to that place? Have you come to know that this is who Jesus is? Have you come to place your saving faith in Him? Has the light that Jesus is your life dawned in your heart? Jesus is not a study, merely. He's not someone that we study, someone that we respect, a help and a guide along the side. For those who have come to saving faith, who have been regenerated, Jesus Christ is our life. It's in a person. Now, if you have come to that understanding, you have come to be born again by the Spirit of Christ You are then one who reflects that light. You will shine out the light that Jesus is our life and our light. That the ultimate revelation of God is Christ and that my life is grounded in Him, is united with His death and His resurrection. I have no identity apart from Jesus Christ. That light should shine in a dark world. So we see wisdom crying out 
at the crossroads, we see the revelation of Jesus Christ announcing the life that is in Him. And that leads then thirdly to Matthew chapter 5, where we find that we are light to the nations. As Christ is light to this world, so are we as His followers as those who have been truly regenerated by Him. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14. Matthew 5 and verse 14. You are the light of the world. Let's think on that in light of what we have considered. No pun intended. But in light of what we've considered, let's think what that means. You, says Jesus to His followers, are the light of the world. Now, obviously, the light does not originate in us. We are derivative lights. But as the moon reflects the sun's rays, so we can genuinely light the way for people lost in moral darkness. He has given us that calling, that high distinction. Sometimes I turn off the lights at night and make my way in the darkness to bed. And the moon offers me no help at all. You know those nights, it's overcast, or the moon, it's a new moon, and it can be downright dangerous as you make your way to the bed in utter darkness. There's other nights, you know those nights, that clear night where the moon is full, I can walk directly from turning off the light right to bed without any problem at all. I can see well enough to get there without any danger. The moon has no light in itself, but it can reflect enough of the sun's rays to illumine a person to safety. We need to understand that we live in a world that is lost in the darkness of sin. We must never forget this. We must never lose sight of it. That the lost are bound in the darkness of immorality, of ignorance, of sin, and natural rejection of God's truth. Thinking of light as purity, as truth, as revelation. They're lost to all of this. They do not perceive their true nature. They do not perceive the source of their soul's satisfaction. They really don't know what it is. They're in the dark. Why they are here, they have no idea. That cocky, self-confident, self-centered person that you work with or go to school with or know in the neighborhood, that individual has no idea why he or she is here on this planet. None. So get past the external And look to the heart and realize that's a person who's utterly lost. And they have no idea where they're going. They really don't know what is beyond this life. They are lost in the darkness of sin. Jesus looks at us as his followers and says to us, you are the light of that dark world. The light is not in you innately, but the light of Christ is reflected from your light sufficiently to put the lights on for them to see their lostness and to give them the direction that they need 
the light of Christ shining in a dark room of sin. That's who you are. You'll notice that it's not an imperative. Become the light of the world. You really should work on this and through sanctification and development become lights in the world. It's not what it says. It's a declarative statement. You are the light of the world. Are you a sliver of light that's really accomplishing nothing? Does sin so shroud the light that you reflect that no one is helped or aided? Or are you a full moon on a clear night reflecting the glory of Christ's light to a lost world? Two illustrations actually follow in the text. Verse 14, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Their common setting of a one-room house with a lamp stand and an oil lamp placed on top of the stand where that one light can illumine the room. In the same way, says Jesus, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They see how we lived, live no longer unaware of our true nature, no longer unaware of the source of happiness, knowing why we are here and where we are going, knowing that our joy is in God as they see that life. The light permits them to bring glory to God and by His grace to begin to investigate where that light comes from. In his book, Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer says this, and I think it is right, a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow Him. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow Him. Our Savior did not find His ministry on a rock somewhere, hidden, invisible, and inaccessible from the world. He touched people. He found times alone. He found times of isolation, generally while people were sleeping. He touched the lost. He was light in a dark world, and it's the job of a lamp in a home to shine forth its light. That was Jesus, and that is the people who follow Him. We are the light of the world, and it is our calling to reflect the beauty of God's wisdom in our words and in the kind of life that we live individually as believers and as a community in the church. Now, we take some time in applying this concept to our own life as a church. There's no direct connection between God's passion to make known His name and His saving grace and our relocation initiative as a church. But God's proclamational nature and our call as a church to shine forth His light should, I think, inspire our quest to move our ministry to the crossroads. That's what should be at its motivation. There's a lot of wrong motivations that we must fight and will continue to fight by the grace of God. 
But if there is any right motivation, it is that, to shine forth as light in this dark world as effectively as we can. The location of our buildings over the past 25 years have had more in common with the monasteries we've looked at earlier than with a city set on a hill. Far more than with Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 8, it would seem, in some respects. We've been largely invisible and inaccessible, and we have continued to make moves away from that very situation, haven't we? Those who know the cave dwelling of Diamond Head Mall, it didn't have a whole lot over some of these hermitages that we've seen in Meteora, Greece. As I mentioned to you at the dedication of our new property, I spent those days, those early days there in the cave at Diamond Head, working alone and thus had great opportunities to pray alone, to pace, to walk, to seek the face of God. And as I've shared with you, I prayed over and over again that God would put us on the crossroads. The reason being and the motivation being, this is the nature of God. We've looked at just three simple illustrations of that, but from cover to cover, this is the God we serve. A God who brings His message out where it can be seen, where it can be proclaimed. On the crossroads, it seems to me, is precisely where the light of the Gospel belongs. Now, as He brought us out of the cave and to this location here, it was a real step forward. But this place, I think we are in agreement largely, keeps us somewhat isolated and inaccessible. This community that surrounds us, particularly Savage, knows that this church exists. They can't miss it. There are things that we are doing in this community to reach people for Christ and to broadcast the light of the gospel. They know we are here. They don't know where we are. And this has been confirmed over and over again as people ask directions, as I meet people in town. Oh, where's your building again? I, I'm asked this question all the time. They're ignorant of where we actually gather as an assembly. We are a concept in their mind, but we're not identified with a place largely in this community. Not true of everyone, by any means. Now there are reasons for us to relocate that would be very beneficial to us. And, and we, we don't miss these. They're not all important, but we don't miss these. To varying degrees, we are an assembly largely dependent on other churches and organizations. We are dependent on, on the graces of other churches and organizations to permit us to have baptisms in the middle of the winter, at least. To hold weddings, largely. Funerals. Youth programs. Even to park our cars. We are dependent upon the grace of others, the goodness of others, to provide these types of things for us. We can live with all that. I can certainly live with all that. What is more difficult to accept, in my way of thinking at least, is the reality that we live our lives here on Glenhurst in the shadows. People know we exist. They don't know where we are. 
They don't look at us week in and week out, apart from the few that gather and surround us here. The vision that is before us is to live the life of Christ in community in the public eye. The goal of moving to Highway 13 would not be to cloister on that spot, to build a berm and fill it with trees, uh, evergreen trees, to hide us and isolate us and create this peaceful environment where we can be isolated from the world that buzzes around us. That's not the purpose of moving there. The purpose of moving there is in every possible way to open our doors and to reveal ourselves to a community that needs hope that's lost in darkness, that says, if nothing else, why are those wackos there every week all the time? Let them think that. They need hope. They need somewhere where they would go for hope and for life. We want to be in the public eye. And before us lies a unique opportunity to position our ministry at a location that is highly visible and accessible, and thus to establish a firm foundation for ministry into the future. To live our lives in community before a watching world and to mark out a distinctive place where God's truth, the truth of His Word, is proclaimed. We want to offer hope to those in darkness. We want to display the life of the body of Christ by people visually seeing our consistent corporate worship. By people seeing banners and signs. By people seeing us eat together outside and play together outside as they have begun to see because of our location there. That they would see funerals. That they would see as people are buzzing by on that busy road a hearse pulling out of our building. And know Someday that's where I'm going to be. What were those people saying in the midst of that funeral? What message was proclaimed? Now that can certainly be the result when someone visualizes a funeral at a funeral home. As an unbeliever lost in darkness goes past. But what if we were able to bring that to the crossroads in a church context? These are just some ways of displaying the glory of God out on the crossroads. I'm very content in this building. I fear my greatest danger is to be too content with it. My discontent lies in the fact that we have not yet brought this church forward to a place where it has a solid foothold on the crossroads for ministry. We're not telling God what He must do by any means. But I am telling you what I believe we should attempt to do for His glory. And I know many would join my voice in that. Now, as I say this, follow me here. It's vital. It would be tragic for us to move to a visible, accessible building and to cloister ourselves away by failing to match our move with a renewed orientation to reach out to a lost world in faithful proclamation. I hope some have been a bit cynical, perhaps, up to this point, and saying, how is moving visibly out there 
in a church building going to really proclaim the gospel. I think there are some ways of doing that in a pre-evangelistic way, such as a funeral, such as picnics and the like. And let us pray that God would move our ministry to the crossroads. But I think we need to join that prayer, and even the leading prayer needs to be that this physical move would be matched by a decided step forward in our desire and capacity to shine forth the light of the gospel in a dark world. That needs to be our focus as we move to such a place and as we continue to live out our life here. How ideal it is with our new home group orientation and the outreach efforts that are being put forward together as a community, as a church, lifting one another up in prayer, encouraging one another to make such contacts and to proclaim the gospel of Christ freely and widely. That's one idea, but may we match it with many others to grasp unique opportunities, and then as we move as an outreaching community to the crossroads, may God allow us simply to build upon that orientation. Now, I move even more practically to the announcement of where our project has brought us to this place. As some are perhaps not aware, we have had those involved in the Jonathan group, those involved in the closing committee, and other, the Hoyt project, those who've been involved in that, those who've been involved in this project of raising funds, and the officers of the church have sought to lead the church by example and to bring our commitments together and to announce them to you today. To this point, that total of that segment of our church has committed to give about $417,000 to this project. This is encouraging news. Now I hasten to say 417 in pledges is not 417 in cash. We realize that. We need to rejoice in uh, 2012 by God's grace as He would bring that to fulfillment. But there are two particular points of rejoicing, even at this preliminary stage. Those who have led in these ways, and it's somewhat of an arbitrary division, but it's just a way that we could get a group moving. Those who have led in these ways have made a statement and that is that they are seriously behind this endeavor. And I rejoice in that. I think we should as a church. I think there is a sense that this is a permanent move, that this is a place, a beachhead, a foundation from which we can start churches and continue in mission both here and throughout the world indefinitely until Christ calls us home. That's the one thing. This, there is a serious orientation to do this move. Secondly, I think this is a thrilling evidence that God's grace is moving among us. Only He knows if we'll have the capacity to really do what we've sought to do, what we're seeking to do in these commitments. But there is a serious sacrifice that is taking place in the parts of many, within this group particularly, and we must embrace the reality that only God can help us do that, but I think we are embracing the reality that our resources belong to Him that everything belongs to God, that He is moving within our assembly 
to do this at this time and to move forward. And as we look at those two ideas, the commitment that is there and the grace of God that is stirring among us, I think this is a very encouraging moment. I want to add to that encouragement a caution. To reach the goal that we have set over these next three years, we still need to raise $183,000 in commitments. Statistically, this is the aid that we're receiving from our consultant, but we need two more people to commit $30,000. There need to be two who would give 60, and four to give 30, and we're We've accomplished much of that. We're down to probably will need to be two that would give that much. Along with that, there needs to be many others who join in and make significant contributions as God gives us ability. Now, how do we do that? December the 6th. Everyone that's not given a three-year commitment is invited to next Sunday morning. Let me say again, this is in print, but sometimes it goes better through the ears. This is not a legal commitment. You don't sign a statement. It's not a promise that you must fulfill this no matter what. It's simply an earnest goal you have determined to conscientiously target and a commitment to trust God to help you give the designated amount through 2012. Why three years? It's a good question. I think the reason is because we are a salary-based culture. We're living in a peaceful and prosperous nation And statistics prove that we can find ways to give more effectively over a three-year period than by simple one-time gifts. The figure you declare on your commitment card is between you and God, as is your fulfillment of that pledge. Both will be kept in strictest confidence. Each of us is simply saying this. This is what I believe God would have me give over the next three years. And I step out in faith to trust Him to supply that grace and to permit me to have this part as an instrument of His purposes. That's all that we're saying. Can I stress again? I hope that this is a very different effort than is heard of in many churches. I heard just yesterday of a church that built way beyond their means and then lost half the congregation because they got sick and tired of hearing people beat on them to give money. There won't be any beatings here unless it's by the Spirit of God. It's just not the way we're going to handle it, not the way we have, and not the way we will. You should not give a dime to this project unless it is above your regular giving. And if that's where God has you and what, where you're at, be at peace with that. Be thankful others are lifting this particular load. Lift the load God's given you to lift. But if you're not able to give above your regular giving, it's not going to accomplish anything at this time. Don't be part of this particular part of the process. Secondly, I would encourage you not to give anything to this project if you do not tithe your income to God. If you're not at the place of giving that 10%, which is just a simple mark of worshipers throughout the world of all religions and all times, work on that first. Get to that place where you know that that's solid in your life and do that this year. And indeed, anything that comes in over to our general fund giving will go, large 90% of it will go to the building anyway at the end of the year. But, But develop that habit and develop that relationship with God first.
Thirdly, giving to this project will not force you to fail any obligations to creditors. If you are bound in debt, there are creditors that you're going to miss paying them what is owed them by giving to the building fund. Don't give anything to it. Fulfill your responsibilities outside of the assembly. And then number four, don't give unless God has stirred your heart to say, I want to join in in what God is doing. I have that desire to trust Him this way, to use this as a sanctifying effort, to have to trust God and to walk with Him over these next years in reliance upon Him. If you can't fulfill any of those four criteria, I would just encourage you, know that there's perhaps a temptation here for you to give to this project in a way you should not. Just realize that's not maybe where you are at your journey, at this point in your journey, and there are things that need to be taken care of till you come to that place. And maybe you say, I do tithe my income. I would be determined to give above what I give. I have no creditors that I would be withholding, and God has stirred my heart, but it's just not there. Then look to God with thanksgiving and ask Him, what can I do? He's given some the ability to sacrifice financially for this endeavor. He will call others to sacrifice in other ways and to participate fully without guilt, gladly before the Lord saying, I'm doing what I know is right. Be at peace. Having said that, next Sunday we need to be joined by the grace of God with many other commitments that will permit us to reach this particular goal. Now, let me say this as I close. Proverbs 8 and Matthew 5 do not dictate that we move our ministry to Highway 13 in Burnsville. That is not the point of this sermon. But if God supplies a means for us to do so, let us go forward in the spirit of these texts. May this truth of God's Word be the thing that motivates us and directs us there. Let us move forward because we are filled with passion to shine the light of the Gospel like a city that is set on a hill. Not shroud the light like hermits in a cave but to shine it forth as ably as we are able to do so with the provision that God supplies. And may we go saying we will pour ourselves into the endeavor to get out there where we can be seen and where the life of Christ can be visual, but to match that with a desire to reach out, to proclaim the Gospel, and to be not simply a building that is visible and accessible, but to be lights of the Gospel that are moving into the darkness of this world and reaching people with the Gospel of Christ. May that be our vision. If it is, we can stay right here. And we can have a ministry that thrives and honors God. Should something happen... Something's always happening. But should something disastrous take place, which it certainly could, we can stay right here and do exactly what God wants us to do. 
This building has nothing to do with, with what is absolutely essential. But should he move us out there, may it be matched by an orientation that says, we are the light of the world and we will seek to shine as a city that is set on a hill and cannot be hidden. God's grace is working in our lives. It is working in the lives of those who have made the particular commitment that's been announced here today I believe that that grace will certainly move in the lives of the rest of the church. And then as we come on December 20th to lay down our first offerings toward this eventual three-year goal, by the grace of God, we will see His grace. And we will know that He is moving, that He is acting, that He is working among us. But may we then continue to redouble our efforts to serve faithfully as the light of the world. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we need you. We know that there are many who have reached out in faith, who are saying by the commitment that they have made to this particular project, we don't know exactly how it will be pulled off, but we are trusting you to help us to this end. We are giving away things that could be used in many other ways. And we remain, Father, in need of caring for those in need, as we should, of continuing to supply the direction and the course of the ministry that you've given us, and to not love a building, but to love the building of the church, the body of Christ. We plead that you would keep us from temptation. That we would pour out our heart's desires to trust you, to honor you, and to walk faithfully in your presence as an assembly. I pray that on the Lord's Day next week we might be able to continue to rejoice at those who have sacrificed to make possible the future goal. But again, Father, if it is yet your desire to stop us, we pray that you will. If it is not your desire to supply the actual funds that have been committed, we rest in that and we would bring glory to your name by your grace. But Lord, if you are indeed moving, we ask that you will move to the glory of your name and accomplish in and through us what we could not do in our own strength. There may well be people among us here today who have not come to understand that Christ is their life and their light. And I pray that you would open their eyes to that message and that they would respond to faith in Him today. And I pray that you will open doors of opportunity for each one of us this week to stick our neck out, to not mind our own business, to be willing to not keep the gospel to ourselves, but to proclaim it as light in a dark world. Thank you for rescuing us from that darkness. And now may we be a shining light to the nations. Through Christ we pray. Amen.